This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Ernest Hemingway said there are only three sports, bullfighting, mountain climbing, and motor racing. The rest, said Papa Hemingway, are merely games. NASCAR is king of motor racing in this country, but a challenger is roaring down the track. Christine Johnson looks in on the fast and furious world of Formula One. The fans are revved up, and the cars are on the track in Austin, Texas this weekend. And the biggest name in the sport, Lewis Hamilton, is in the house. You get into the zone, and you're in a different place, and you're just like, oh, you come alive. Formula One is coming to America, and coming up on Sunday morning. Journalist Bob Woodward this week is releasing hours of taped interviews conducted with our 45th president, Donald Trump. Woodward is in conversation now with our John Dickerson. Mr. Woodward, the president. Hi, Bob. Back in 2020, whenever the phone rang at Bob Woodward's house, he reached for a tape recorder. 
the phone would ring. Is it a robocall or is it Trump? Often it was Trump. 16 calls, eight hours of conversation. I bring rage out. I do bring rage out. I always have. I don't know if that's an asset or a liability, but whatever it is, I do. Later on Sunday morning, Bob Woodward and the Trump tapes. For better or worse, a New Yorker by the name of Robert Moses refashioned much of this city in the mid-20th century. Martha Teichner speaks with Ray Fiennes, starring in a new play about the power broker. Robert Moses, whose very enemies would say that he, more than any other person, is the man who built New York. That's no exaggeration. Ray Fine stars in a new play about him. He has an extraordinary inner conviction that he is right. Is he arrogant? Yeah. The need is there! He's still controversial, though. A reminder why, ahead this Sunday morning. Rita Braver talks with best-selling author John Irving. Tracy Smith introduces us to standout stand-up comedian Gabriel Iglesias, better known as Fluffy. We'll revisit the late Ed Bradley's extraordinary account of the 1955 murder of Emmett Till. Plus a story from Steve Hartman and more this Sunday morning for the 23rd of October, 2022. And we'll be right back. It's become the proven formula for success at the raceway. Christine Johnson gets us up to speed. Formula One racing roared into Austin, Texas this weekend. So does that protect your ears? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a rush adrenaline. It's just a pumping in your heart and you're like, yes. Formula One dates back to 1950. It's equal parts speed, triumph, and danger. Up to 230 miles an hour, usually on tracks like the Circuit of the Americas in Austin, where later today, they'll race 56 laps. What is the draw? We're all fighting for glory, all fighting for uh, chasing time and perfection. There's crashes, there's carnage, there's crazy emotions. British driver Lewis Hamilton is this era's king, with the most wins of all time. He is tied for the most championships at seven. This is how we control the engine. There's multiple different settings for different power modes. An F1 steering wheel is more like a game console. You're keeping track of all of this information. You're driving over 200 miles per hour and you're like this close to your opponent. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is kind of crazy. I think the great thing about our sport is, is like you really, really go into a different place. So you activate a different part of the brain uh, when the visor comes down. 2022 has been disappointing for Hamilton with no wins so far but he's become known for more than what he does on the track. He stands out for his sense of fashion. More significantly, he is the only black driver to ever race in F1, and he has been outspoken about increasing diversity in the sport. 
When I was a kid, me and my family were watching this sport and we didn't see anyone like us, but we thought that you know, maybe we'll get there and we'll be able to change that. You faced discrimination when you first came into this sport. Yeah, well, I mean, through my whole life, to be honest, in England, I was always I was told a lot to go back to my own country. There's a lot of racial abuse, uh, both in school, but also um, at the racetrack. And my responsibility here is to be that thorn in uh, the backside of any of those that uh, are complicit, uh, who are not holding themselves accountable, who are, who are not doing the work. Formula One races are held across the globe, but F1 is just beginning to pick up speed in the US where Austin and Miami host races. While Europeans followed F1, Americans were traditionally fans of Indy and NASCAR. With big money at stake, Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali has worked to increase the sport's appeal. Maybe in the past there was just this attitude of being maybe too much arrogant to say this is Formula One, this is it, take it or leave it. This and almost fighter pilot mentality. Anything can happen. He says F1 is reaching out to fans by personalizing its drivers, such as on Drive to Survive, a huge hit on Netflix. We need to stay close to them. We need to stay close to them. And this is really. You see? That's amazing. Maybe Americans haven't been so much into Formula One because there are no American drivers. Our feet, you know, come all the way down to here, and... Um, so you're laying down, basically. Yeah, you're, you're pretty laid out, to be honest. You're Meet Logan Sargent. We'll have a seat made, which fits our body perfectly, to hold us even tighter in the car. Talk and, about uh, custom made. Yeah, it, it's, it's fit to perfection. How's it going? Sargent is awesome, 21 years old and races on the F2 circuit, one notch below Formula One. He's the only U.S. driver on the tour, but to get there, he had to move from his native Florida to London. I've spent my whole life in Europe, sort of, since I, since I was 12 years old, sort of chasing this, this dream, and I just feel so at home now. His fans are hoping he could move to Formula One as early as next year. So have you thought about that moment when you're going to be able to race in America? You know, as an American kid, like, this is a dream. Like, if you had told me that when I was six years old, you know, beginning to race, I would tell you you're crazy. Formula One is a man's world. Only two women have ever started an F1 race. And the 18 talented female drivers leading the grid. But on a new tour, the W Series, all drivers are women, including one American, the only American, Chloe Chambers. This year, I've just graduated high school in June. Chambers is just 18 years old, and racing was clearly in her blood from an early age. This is my Porsche. At eight years old, she was racing go-karts, winning national titles. She now races for the Jenner team, as in Caitlyn Jenner. As to why there aren't more women like her in racing, it's not a matter of women not having enough talent. It's just not having enough experience. And that just simply comes from not having enough funding. To underscore that point, the W Series recently canceled its last three races of the year, including Austin, because an investor pulled out. They're hoping to get back on track next year.
but also next year, sources confirmed to us F1 will launch a series featuring young women drivers. What's your goal? My goal ever since I started racing is Formula One. We are going to interview Lewis Hamilton. Are you ready to go up against him? I would totally be up for going against Lewis Hamilton, yes. <laughs> a challenge. We had to run by the man himself. I love that. I have a feeling that he would be in total support of that, though. I love that. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, What's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Journalist Bob Woodward has become the author of record about the modern American presidency. Now Woodward's releasing an audio book, allowing us to listen in on former President Donald Trump in his own words. Woodward tells our John Dickerson all about it. For nine months back in 2020, when the phone rang at Bob Woodward's home on this leafy Georgetown street, there was a good chance it was a call he didn't want to miss. Hi, Bob. President Hi. Trump, how are you? Sometimes Woodward's wife, journalist Elsa Walsh, answered the calls, which came day or night. So we joke, and I sort of say there's, like, Princess Diana, that there were three people in this marriage, Bob, me, and Donald Trump. And it was sort of never-ending. The phone would ring. Is it a robocall or is it Trump? Go ahead, Mr. President. You are connected. Hi, Bob. Sir, how are you? Woodward scattered tape recorders around the house to be ready for the surprise calls. I'm turning my recorder on here, as I always do. And Donald Trump would talk. I respect Putin. I think Putin likes me. I think I like him. And talk. I said to the king, King, you got to pay us for protection. On the pandemic, North Korea, Russia, race relations, just about anything. I bring rage out. I do bring rage out. I always have. I don't know if that's an asset or a liability, but whatever it is, I do. There were 16 phone calls, 20 interviews all told, eight hours of conversations, which Woodward has compiled into an audiobook, The Trump Tapes, out this week, published by Simon & Schuster, part of our parent company, Paramount Global. In many ways, it's the missing piece of the Trump story. We've heard a lot of Trump. He's said a lot. 
but what did he do in the presidency? And uh, having the time, I could go back and ask questions again and again. Woodward has written about the calls, but hearing Trump in his own voice, he believes, is enlightening. I reported on this in the book I did, Rage, but I then went back and listened to these tapes and said, my God, there is a whole new Trump that emerges. We got along great. We've always gotten along great. His tone of voice offers insight into why Trump may have kept totems from his presidency at Mar-a-Lago, like the letters from North Korea's Kim Jong-un. It's clearly a relationship he cherishes. You meet somebody and you have a good chemistry, and there is a lot of truth to it. You meet a woman. In one second, you know whether or not it's all going to happen. Okay. We had a very good chemistry together. The topics veer from the humorous. I said, did you ever hear the song Rocket Man? He said, no, no. Did you ever hear of Elton John? No, no. I said, I did you a great favor. I called you Rocket Man. He goes, you called me Little Rocket Man. To the deadly serious. Did you give him Kim too much power? No. Because if he's defiant, if he shoots one of those... That's I a, see the errors. What are you going to do? Let me tell you, whether I gave it to him or not, if he shoots, he shoots, and if he shoots, he shoots. He says about the North Korea leader, if he shoots, he shoots. How did you react to that? I really froze because Trump said it in a way of, if he shoots, you know, kind of cavalier, and of course, it would be unthinkable. One theme runs throughout all eight hours of tape. Trump thought the presidency was a one-man show. I get people, they come up with ideas, but the ideas are mine, Bob. Uh, and I, mine. And Want then, to know something? Everything's mine. But a presidency based on personality was overmatched by COVID-19. One of the most stunning moments I've had 50 years in reporting. Woodward learned that on January 28, 2020, just days after the first COVID-19 case was confirmed in the United States, Trump's national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, had given him a grave warning. I think the exact phrase I used was, this will be the biggest national security threat you face in your presidency. I was pretty passionate about it. Yet at a rally two weeks later, Trump said this. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer and miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. When Woodward learned about that disconnect between what the president knew and what he said, he asked Trump why he didn't sound the alarm. I wanted to always play it down because I don't want to create a panic. Was there a moment in all of this last two months where you said to yourself, ah, this is the leadership test of a lifetime? No. When you hear this voice and the way he assesses situations in himself. He's drowning in himself. And at one point, we're, I'm interviewing him, and I just offered the commentary, I feel like I'm talking to a drowning man when he's talking about the virus, and he says, we've got it under control. Taken as a whole, the recordings paint a revealing self-portrait. Is it that he thinks of the presidency as a possession? Yes, I think he does. I think it's as it's a trophy and he has got it and uh, he is going to hold it. Which leads to one of Woodward's biggest regrets, the question he didn't ask. 
There was one point where I asked him, I said, I hear that uh, if you lose, you're not going to leave the White House. Everyone says Trump is going to stay in the White House if it's contested. Have you? Well, I'm not, I, I don't want to even comment on that. Though. Sure. I don't want okay. to comment on that at this time. Hey, Bob, I got all I these understand. people. I'll talk to you later on tonight. It's the only time he had no comment. And this, of course, was months before his loss and kind of slapped myself a little bit. Why didn't I follow up on that a little bit more? At the end of the book, Rage, you said that Donald Trump was singularly unfit to be president. And now listening to these tapes, you draw a more grave conclusion. What is that conclusion? Trump was the wrong man for the job. I realize now two years later, all of the January 6th insurrection leads me to the conclusion that he's not just the wrong man for the job, but he's dangerous. And he is a threat to democracy, and he's a threat to the presidency because he doesn't understand the core obligations that come with that office. With his first bestseller, The World According to Garp, John Irving joined the ranks of great American novelists. But just how he sees himself may surprise you. He's in conversation with Rita Braver. Why do you think of yourself as a 19th century writer? Well, because those novels have always represented the model of the form for me. I loathe Hemingway. I thought Faulkner was uh, excessive. Fitzgerald was uh, okay, but uh, lazy at times. I was enamored of the kind of novel all of my classmates in school despised. <laughs> thought, oh, God, Dickens, I gotta read Dickens, oh, I gotta read Hawthorne, you know. But I mean, while John Irving's favorite 19th century novel, Moby Dick, was first published in the U.S. at around 600 pages, Irving has just released The Last Chairlift, which goes for almost 900 pages. I know. If only it had been three novels, I could have been paid three times as much. If you write a novel that uh, encompasses a whole lifetime, well, it's hard for that to be a short novel. Irving has written 15 novels, including some blockbusters. His latest, published by Simon & Schuster, part of Paramount Global, our parent company, revisits some of his recurring themes. It's a mysterious mother, uh, an unknown biological father. This is not a new premise for many of my readers. I was warned against asking you if your books are autobiographical, yet that is what happened to you. You were not raised by your own birth father. I try to have a little fun with my autobiography, and I often begin a novel in those very familiar scenes, and then I utterly change what happens. So what do you like about living in Toronto? I like being back in the city again. Now 80, John Irving holds joint U.S.-Canadian citizenship and lives here with his Canadian-born wife, literary agent Janet Turnbull Irving. But he grew up in Exeter, New Hampshire, and like the narrator of his new book, attended the prestigious Phillips Exeter Academy, where his stepfather taught. As with many of the characters in his novels, 
wrestling, and writing were John Irving's early passions. You don't get to choose your obsessions. Your obsessions choose you. Irving worked as a teacher and wrestling coach while writing three little-noticed novels. Then one hit it big in 1978, The World According to Garp, which won the National Book Award. When the success happened, I knew how fortunate I was now to be able to do this thing, the only thing I ever wanted to do full-time. In the 1982 film, Robin Williams played aspiring writer T.S. Garp with John Lithgow as Roberta Muldoon. I hate to use a corny line like this, but haven't I seen you before? You like football? Oh, yeah, I used to watch it quite a bit. Well, you might have seen me. I was a tight end with the Philadelphia Eagles. Number 90, Robert Muldoon. And there is one person who truly appreciates how revolutionary it was for Irving to create a trans character so many decades ago. It's such a blessing to be able to have that kind of relationship with my dad, to know that he was writing about trans people in 1978. <laughs> and you were born in? 1991. Yeah. <laughs> John Irving's daughter, Eva Everett Irving, actor, filmmaker, and writer, grew up as the youngest of Irving's three sons. She came out as trans in 2015. When I came out, I just knew that you were going to be accepting. I didn't have to worry about that, and so many people do have to worry about that. It was instinctive for me to say, whoever you determine you are, the more difficult, the more people who might um, be intolerant of you or hurt you, um, the more I love you, the more I support you. In the last chairlift, the narrator is the only major straight character. I wanted to turn the scales so that I could see a loving family uh, of queer people who were trying to look after this straight guy who's the last guy to know. The last guy to know everything. Yes. <laughs> yes, a perfect narrator. He is a perfect storyteller. <laughs> Irving always writes his first draft by hand and always starts with the ending. When I first read Moby Dick, that was the novel that showed me how you foreshadow an ending. If you really know exactly what's going to happen, you can do it this way. I wanted the sperm whale from... In fact, Irving has the last line of Moby Dick tattooed on one arm. Only found another orphan. On the other arm... Good night, you princes of Maine. You kings of New England. That's the last line from the Cider House Rules. Irving's screenplay of the novel won him an Oscar in 2000. It was fun. It was gratifying. Toby McGuire plays a young man who grows up in an orphanage, run by a doctor, played by Michael Caine, who also performs illegal abortions to help desperate women. I came as a physician to the abandoned children and unhappily pregnant women. Do you feel that your role as a writer is in part to speak out on political subjects? When there is a political subject, I don't back away from it, but it is never the 
foundation of why I write a novel. John Irving says his next novels will be shorter, but he has no plans to stop writing. And he says he often forgets about his age, as at live events when he spots an old friend in the audience. Here I am, an 80-year-old croc sitting on, on stage, and I look out and I said, oh my God, he's gotten older. <laughs> doesn't even occur to me that person's probably looking at me and thinking, oh, Jesus. John doesn't look very good, you know. (laughs) (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. They have a different set of rules for Negroes down there. Are you listening? Yes. You have to be extra careful with white people. You can't risk looking at them the wrong way. I know. Till is the new film about the 1955 murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till, a crime that helped spark the civil rights movement. The movie has opened to rave reviews and got us thinking about the 2004 60 Minutes report on Emmett Till's death from our late colleague, Ed Bradley. We wanted to share some excerpts of that award-winning story. He was 14 years old when he was kidnapped, tortured, and killed. The failure to punish anyone for the crime made headlines across the country and around the world, exposing the racial hatred and unequal justice for blacks that was pervasive in the segregated South, where laws dictated where blacks could eat and drink and where they could sleep. But Emmett Till wasn't from the South. He was from Chicago and just visiting relatives in Mississippi in August of 1955 when his nightmare began. Emmett's 16-year-old cousin traveled to Mississippi with him, Wheeler Parker Jr., now 65 years old. He loved pranks. He loved fun. He loved jokes. You know, he just was there in the center of everything. He's kind of a natural-born leader. Why would that be a problem? In Mississippi, why would it be a problem? (laughs) <laughs> did, did anybody say, look, here are the do's and the don'ts about going to Mississippi. You do this, you don't do that. Oh, yes, that's routine. You're always prepared to go to Mississippi to stay alive because, you know, once you got to Mississippi, you had no protection under the law. For Emmett Till, the trouble started here at Bryant's Meat Market and Grocery Store in Money, Mississippi. The store was owned by a white couple, Roy Bryant, and his 21-year-old wife, Carolyn, who was behind the counter the afternoon that Emmett Till and his cousins 
came in to buy some candy. As he was leaving the store, Emmett Till whistled at Carolyn Bryant, and she went to get a gun. Simeon Wright, Emmett Till's cousin who lived in Mississippi, was 12 years old on that day. We ran, we jumped in the car, and we got out of there. Just because he whistled? Oh, yes. It's, it's like if, you, if you're a kid, you throw a rock and break a window. You don't hang around to see what's going to happen. Emmett Till and his cousins raced home that day and hoped nothing would come of what Emmett had done. But three days later, Carolyn Bryant's husband Roy and his half-brother J.W. Milam went looking for Emmett Till in the middle of the night and found him and his cousins at the home of Reverend Mose Wright, Emmett's late great-uncle. Emmett Till and Simeon Wright, Mose Wright's son, were asleep together in one room. I woke up and I, I, I looked, I saw two men standing over the bed with the one had a gun, which was J.W. Milan. I saw uh, Roy Bryant, and they ordered Emmett to get up and put his clothes on. And my mother was pleading and begging with him not to take him. My dad was pleading with him. And, and my mother then at that time offered to, to give them money to leave uh, Emmett alone. And Roy Bryant kind of hesitated, but J.W. Milan he didn't hesitate at all. I'd have been scared to death. Not only afraid, but there was a, a, a sorrow, a sadness over the whole house. Looked like. It looked like you could, you could cut the grief in the, in the house. Because after they left, no one said anything hardly. On August 31st, 1955, three days after he'd been abducted, Emmett Till's mangled body was found by a boy fishing in the waters of the Tallahatchie River not far from Money. His body had been weighted down by a 75-pound fan from a cotton gin attached to his neck by barbed wire. He'd been badly tortured. An eye was detached, an ear cut off, and he appeared to have been shot in the head. The local sheriff, H.C. Strider, a plantation owner and ardent segregationist, tried to have the body buried immediately, hoping no one in the outside world would ever find out what happened to Emmett Till. But Emmett's mother, Mamie, battled with Mississippi authorities and was able to have her son's body returned to Chicago so she could identify him before she buried him. I looked at his teeth because I took so much pride in his teeth. His teeth were the prettiest things I'd ever seen in my life, I thought. And, uh, I only saw two. Who were the rest of them? They'd just been knocked out. Some 50,000 people, nearly all of them black, turned out for Emmett Till's funeral. Mamie Till ordered the funeral director to place her son in an open casket and permitted this shocking photograph of Emmett's corpse, which was seen across the country. I said, I want the world to see this. Because when people saw what had happened to this little 14-year-old boy, they knew then that not only were men, black men, in danger, but black children as well. The same day that Emmett Till was buried, Roy Bryan and J.W. Milam were indicted on charges of kidnapping and murder. Their trial was held in the small Mississippi town of Sumner, billed as a good place to raise a boy. The star witness was Emmett Till's late great-uncle, Mose Wright, 
who bravely stood up in the courtroom and pointed his finger at Milam and Bryant as the ones who had come to his home and abducted Emmett Till at gunpoint. Another key witness was an 18-year-old sharecropper named Willie Reed, who said that on the morning after Emmett Till was abducted, he saw Emmett on a truck with six people, Roy Bryant, J.W. Milam, two other white men, and two black men who worked for Milam. Soon after, Reed said he saw the same truck parked in front of a barn, managed at the time by Milam's brother, and heard the screams of a young boy he presumed was Emmett Till. When they found the body, did you put two and two together and think that what you had heard going on in that barn, that that was Emmett Till? I'm sure. I was sure then. Fearing for his life after testifying against Milam and Bryant, Willie Reed was smuggled out of Mississippi. He went to Chicago, where he suffered a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized. You're a good man. You had a lot of courage for 18-year-old. I think there are a lot of people who would have walked away from it, wouldn't have said a word. No, I, I, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't have walked away from that like that because uh, Emmett was 14, probably never been to Mississippi in his life, and he come to visit his grandfather, and they killed him. I mean, that's not right. It took the jury just an hour and seven minutes to return a verdict of not guilty. One juror said it wouldn't have taken that long, but they stopped to take a soda pop break to make it look good. Milam and Bryant were congratulated by their many supporters and kissed their wives in celebration. Four months after the trial, knowing that double jeopardy protected them from being tried again, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam admitted to a reporter from Look Magazine that they had, in fact, tortured and murdered Emmett Till. They were paid $4,000 for their story. Emmett Till's family has had to live with that for nearly 50 years, that his killers confessed and nothing ever happened to them. J.W. Mott and Roy Bryant confessed that they killed Emmett. The people of the state of Mississippi said they didn't. We need to reconcile that statement, and we need to send a message to those who are committing crimes against blacks like this that you can get by, but you can't get away. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Anyone who has gone on a diet knows how hard it is to change your eating habits for one week. You're going to lose weight. I lost weight, patience, and friends. They call him Fluffy. 
though his actual name is Gabriel Iglesias. It may not surprise you, he likes fast food. He's also a collector of vintage Volkswagens. Most of all, he's very funny. Tracy Smith catches up with Fluffy just for laughs. It takes a pretty big name to fill LA's Dodger Stadium. The Beatles didn't quite manage it in 66. But Sir Elton John did in 75. And last May, this guy became the first comic ever to sell out the famous ballpark. All for a comedy special that's streaming now on Netflix. <laughs> wow. He's Gabriel Iglesias, known to his millions of fans as Fluffy. Such an amazing night. I still tell everybody that is the single greatest night of my life. So far. So far. <laughs> the week is young. <laughs> I don't talk about politics, religion, or sports, okay? Because all three will divide people. That's why I talk about food. Because food brings people together. That's right, unless you're vegan. Okay, so where did Fluffy come from? It's a nickname that I got many, many years ago. It's the, the joke was, uh, I told my mom, I don't, mom, I'm, you know, they keep calling me fat. Oh, mijo, you're not fat, you're Fluffy. And I'm like, Fluffy, okay, Fluffy, and then it just stuck. It stuck. And I hated it. I hated the fact that people were calling me Fluffy, not calling me Gabriel. And right now, if you Google or you go to any search engine and you put in Fluffy, my face pops up. And so I tell people I own the word, because literally, I do. My dog loves me so much, he cannot control his own bodily functions. When I would go home, I would immediately pick him up before anything. And then my girlfriend would get mad. How come you don't come to me first? Because the dog loves me more. How do you know I don't love you more? I said, I don't see a puddle. He also owns a reputation as one of the most successful comedians working today. And by choice, one of the least controversial. Everyone has opinions. And I tell people, I got strong opinions, I go, but I don't put them on stage. I go, you want to know how I feel? Buy me a drink. Let's hang out at the bar. Leave your camera in the car. All right, let's just talk. You know, as, as, a, as a comic, though, I just want to keep the show fun and friendly for everyone. The youngest of six, Iglesias was just a kid when his parents split up. So he was raised by his single mom. Was she strict? <laughs> Not strict. She was, um, she was fair. And I, I did, I tested her many times as a kid. Uh, fortunately, uh, I learned quickly that I don't like pain. And yeah, because back then you were allowed to, yeah. It, and it was, it was uh, encouraged. An occasional spanking or my, two? Uh, spanking sort of is light. No, my mom had a belt that she, she had a nail that she put in the kitchen, in the wall, and then she would hang the belt on the nail. And she'd go, you know, I'm your mom and that's your dad. You let me know when you want to talk to him. And I'm like, okay. Anybody got them mothers that would hit you with a shoe? I had a mother that would throw a shoe at you at the drop of a dime. Even as a grade school kid, young Gabriel was a stand-up comedy fan. This one, Eddie Murphy's Raw, was his favorite. My mom was going to be gone for a couple of hours, and so I got, I got a couple of hours worth of videotapes, and that's what kept me entertained while she was gone. And Eddie Murphy Raw. Eddie Murphy Raw is what I saw and what inspired me to want to do comedy. Next thing I know, I did a school talent show, and the rest is history. 
Apollo, please welcome comedian Gabriel Iglesias. Like most new comedians, Fluffy's early gigs didn't pay much. I know a lot of you are probably wondering right now, Gabriel, are you related to... Ladies, you better believe it. Hey, trust me, after a six-pack and a shot of tequila, I look a lot like Julio. So he took side jobs to scrape by. I knew a contractor, and I called him up, and I said, hey, do you have anything I could do for cash? And he goes, well, all I got are guys that are digging ditches. If, you know, if you're, if you're not too good to dig a ditch, I'm like, I'll go dig a ditch. And so I did that just to get cash. So you'd be digging ditches by day when you had to. Digging ditches by day and night. doing comedy at night. Well, listen, if we don't leave right now, they're going to close McDonald's, and you're going to have to eat at the airport. But it got better, and within a few years, he went from making a living on stage to making a killing. No one ever gives me a hard time for driving one of these, or 20. Now, with a net worth <laughs> reportedly in the tens of millions, Fluffy Iglesias can afford to indulge his lifelong passion, Volkswagens. So it went from one VW to how many? A few. Um, yeah, I don't have a problem. <laughs> his office in his hometown of Long Beach, California, looks more like a VW museum. Each one is pristine and drivable. Listen to that. But if you don't struggle, if you don't know what it is to have to earn something, then will you really appreciate it? How will you take care of it? But it's a hobby that takes a back seat to his career. Fluffy's been known to spend 44 weeks a year on the road. You've had a few health issues that I don't know whether it's due to the relentless pace. But no, it's due to drive-throughs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a heavy guy now, but I used to be 100 pounds heavier. And so, you know, it's easy to do it when you're younger, but when time starts creeping up on you. You got to adjust or, you know, or, or it'll adjust for you. Did you have alarm bells? I mean, you got diagnosed with diabetes. Diabetes, yeah. And I still, like, for example, I wear a, um, a monitor right here that, 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 you know, keeps tabs on my blood sugar and lets me know when I'm acting a fool. But, you know, you wear this long enough, you already know. I already know, just looking at something, yeah, that's gonna, it's, yeah. It's like a little extra relationship, like, you know you should be doing I know. <laughs> Don't even think about I know. <laughs> so. So do you listen to it? Sometimes, but if there's a, an opportunity for a moment, you know, I, I, I feel like I still need my little moments, so yeah. I'll, you know. We did it. And few moments are sweeter than his Dodger Stadium gig. In fact, the day before it happened, Fluffy said he knew it would be a hard act to follow. How do you top this? That's been a question. Uh, what do we do after this? Because, like, for me, the first thought was after 25 years, maybe I hang it up. I've saved my money. I, I've paid all my bills. I don't owe anybody anything. I could actually just ride off into the sunset, and I think nobody would, would hold it against me if I made this the last show. But then there's also the conversation of, well, if you could do one of these, maybe you could do another one. And so, you know, I think that that's more solo what we're leaning, you know, towards. Yeah, you can't walk away. Come on. I know I'm too pretty still. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Hartman this morning has a story about small gestures that make a big difference. Just outside Salt Lake City, 46-year-old Shauna Austin is about to let you in on a secret. I've never talked about it, ever. When Shauna was 20 and single, she got pregnant. Says she wasn't ready to be a mom, so she made the decision to place her baby for adoption. 
it wasn't easy. Do you remember holding him the first time? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. What was that like? He was perfect. And I knew I would have him for a short time. So I made every minute count with him. She called the boy Riley and says she held him for 72 hours straight until the time came to let go. Her Riley was now somebody else's Stephen. And at this point, like with most closed adoptions, a firewall went up between Shauna and Stephen's new parents. No communication whatsoever. And this went on for about a week. It was like, okay, this is the way it should be. She is part of our family. Adoptive parents Jennifer and Chris Schobinger say they had no interest in excluding the birth mother. You know, you can't have too many people loving you, right? Why couldn't he be both of ours? So, year after year, they sent Shauna piles of pictures and these bound books detailing Stephen's every major and minor milestone, like this complete list of his vocabulary. Also, that when Shauna was ready and Stephen was ready, they could pick up right where they left off. The two reunited when Stephen was seven. Shauna taught him how to fish, and they have been reeling in the memories ever since. I was blessed beyond words. I kind of got best of both worlds for sure. Stephen is now 26, married with a brand new boy of his own, much to the delight of Grandma Shauna. That was really special. It just brought that full circle around. Especially when she heard the baby's name, <clears throat> Riley. Oh. Felt like that name was just supposed to be in the family. I think the lesson we've learned is that sometimes we create barriers where barriers don't need to be. Mm. And when we pull down those barriers, we really find love on the other side. <laughs> Words of wisdom to help us all live the life of Riley. Oh my gosh, he is so Ray Fiennes is an accomplished actor appearing in a new play about a New Yorker, both respected and reviled. Urban planner Robert Moses, Martha Teichner now on progress and its price. If you don't know who Robert Moses was, this picture of a scowling giant straddling New York City's vast sprawl will give you a hint. And I did what no one else could do, and it stands providing a frame for the way New Yorkers live, giving them a structure that's going to last. Actor Ray Fine stars in a play about Robert Moses opening this week. In the city that is what it is even today, the good and the bad, because of the nearly unchecked power R.M. had for more than 40 years to shape it. That's such a half-witted bunch of people, my God! The play, Straight Line Crazy, is by British playwright David Hare. What I like about the play is the provocation of it. it is the provocation of a man who challenges you to like him. He does stuff for people. He's also done terrible stuff to people. Robert Moses, whose very enemies would say that he, more than any other person, is the man who built New York. From this 1963 CBS Reports, 
a partial list of Robert Moses public works in New York City and beyond. To the east, the United Nations building, perched astride one of those incredible Moses peripheral highways, then the Whitestone Bridge and the Throg's Neck. Including more than a dozen great bridges and roads, 627 miles of roads. When you were in his presence, one of the things you saw was genius. The other thing that you saw was, don't get in my way. Robert Caro interviewed him seven times for The Power Broker, his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Moses. He's raised to power by the first Irish Catholic governor, Al Smith. He was the first person who listened to Robert Moses' ideas. Al Smith, the popular cigar-chomping product of New York City's immigrant slums, in 1924, began appointing the Yale and Oxford-educated Moses to commissions that enabled him to start accumulating the power to build an empire. <laughs> Backed by the governor, Moses set his sights first on Long Island. I'm in a hurry, and I'm in a hurry to help. To help the millions out there who have no access to a good life. And if a few fences get kicked over in the process, does it really matter? Please! Moses strong-armed his way across the island, seizing land for two scenic parkways. At the end of those parkways, he built his first public works masterpiece. The tall spire in the center of this picture is the Jones Beach Water Tower. And eight great parking fields like this one can accommodate over 17,000 cars at a time. Jones Beach opened in 1929, packed with recreational facilities along 6.5 miles of white sand, but accessible essentially only to the white middle class who could afford cars. Moses made sure there would be no train to Jones Beach and deliberately built the overpasses on his parkways so low, buses had to get there another way. The first of Moses' commandments for progress is, thou shalt drive. For Moses, that meant constructing more and more expressways. It's like Picasso in front of a canvas. He sees this whole area with whatever number of people as one picture. But over time, Every time he built an expressway, it was overcrowded the minute it opened. And did he ever change his vision to reflect the change in the times and the circumstances? The answer is absolutely not. Nothing stood in the way. The human tragedy caused by that one mile out of all the miles that he created. In The Power Broker, Robert Caro documents what happened when Moses slashed through a one-mile stretch of the East Tremont neighborhood to build the Cross Bronx Expressway, leaving thousands of people nowhere to go in what looked like a bombed-out war zone. He's saying he's relocating the people humanely. In fact, he's doing nothing to relocate the people. He's just throwing them out. He did it over and over again. Threw out of their homes 500,000 people. Just think what that is. How come nobody stopped him? They couldn't. Moses was appointed, not elected, 
to positions of enormous power that put him beyond the reach of the eight New York City mayors and six governors he outlasted. In a democratic society, his power had nothing to do with democracy. With that anti-democratic power, he shaped the greatest metropolis in the Western world. We don't pay too much attention to the critics. They never build anything. No critic ever build anything. And that was just it. Robert Moses did build things, and not just roads. Moses-style urban renewal was copied all over the United States. To people whose neighborhoods he didn't destroy, he was a hero. Until he wasn't. The need is there, clearly, for three elevated expressways here, here, and here. The obstacle in his path this time? Manhattan's historic Washington Square Park. Traffic would come down Fifth Avenue, and then it would continue right through here, right under the arch. The park would become, in effect, an on-ramp to his planned expressway across Lower Manhattan. He would have completely destroyed it. But instead of poor people who had no clout, the opposition included Eleanor Roosevelt. Visible and vocal among its leaders was activist Jane Jacobs. We need war, full out and flat out, to stop this hideous violation which Moses is planning. They did stop it. They are joined by a fair president. Robert Moses ran the 1964 New York World's Fair, but it was a financial failure. By 1968, he had been maneuvered out of power. He died in 1981 at 92, embittered. Now, of course, suddenly fashionable to dislike me because I'm the dirty bastard who pushed through the things democracy needed, but which democracy couldn't deliver. And secretly, people know that they know I'm necessary. But was his creation worth the cost? The city that we're living in today is still, for better and for worse, his city. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. And how long have you been the, the producer of this? We've been doing this for two years now. Okay. And and what is it like to attempt to uh, get feedback from me about the podcast? Be honest about how quickly I respond to emails. You actually respond to emails surprisingly fast. Really? I, I think you might be the only person I respond to. <laughs> I respond to quickly. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I expected I expected you to lay into me. Well, this was over the strike period. Oh, I had time. Yeah. See, that, that, does, that doesn't count. <laughs> 
Sure, I responded to everything because responding to you putting reruns up on the podcast was like a form of employment. Yeah. And I felt like I had something to get up for every yeah. day. So thank you for that. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>